Blog Talk Radio. And good evening, everybody, and thank you for choosing King Jordan Radio for Thursday, November 6th. 2014, this is King Jordan you're listening to. Tonight on the show, we will be joined with world-renowned body language expert, jury consultant, Susan Constantine. And ladies and gentlemen, she is here. Let's welcome back to the program, Miss Susan Constantine. Good evening, Susan, and welcome back to King Jordan Radio. How are you? I'm doing great, King. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, tonight we're going to touch on some subjects like uh, Wade Robson and some changing of the guard. Uh, We'll talk about Jody Arias. We'll talk about uh, a little bit about some karma collects uh, with uh, Jorn Vandersloot. But before we do all that, um, let some of the new listeners uh, that don't know much about you. uh, let's get a little bio of you. Know, well, they call me the sure. They call me the body language expert, and what I have done for the past twelve years is um, worked on a lot of high-profile trials, analyzing the body language of suspects and witnesses during jury selection, and um, or the jurors during jury selection, and also. Uh, for national television, analyzing some of the most perif- you know horrible, horrific killers that there are we've seen in the centuries, and uh, in addition to that, uh, I speak and train all over the country, and my clients consist of anything from the Department of Defense to um, corporations. So uh, that's what I do for a living. And it's uh, really cool to have the, the skill of a body language uh, speaking from an outside person that wants to to get into it because there's a lot of pros to, to learning body language, right? You could figure yeah, out what's can, going on. I think it's great for any type of business. I mean, regardless whether you're in sales, uh, if you're a manager, supervisor, uh, anyone that has face-to-face interactions with other people, and then... And also, too, um, King, that one thing, too, is that people have asked me, so, well, you know, I, I don't do a lot of face-to-face, but I, um, I, you know, I do a lot of my business over the phone so, and, or over the Internet. And I want to share with you that this is equally as, as important because body language is not just, just in your gestures, but it's your tone of your voice, the words that you use, how you phrase them, your change in your pitch uh, in your vocals. Uh, can tell you a lot about what somebody's thinking and feeling, and which is what we're going to talk about tonight. Absolutely. And uh, about a year ago, we had you on here to uh, analyze Wade Robson. Um, you saw the new claims or updated claims. But first, I want to play uh, a portion of what he said to Matt Lauer. And then... Um, with the information that you have now, um, updated information, I want you to give me an analyzation of that, if that's okay. Sure. 
Okay, so here is Wade Robson, um, May 2013. Well, this morning we begin this half hour with a new claim from Wade Robson, Michael Jackson's former protege and longtime defender, a claim that the pop star molested him for years. We're going to talk to Wade in a moment exclusively, but first, his story. For years, dancer and famed choreographer Wade Robson spoke of his one-time friend and mentor Michael Jackson with only admiration. Just had a wonderful relationship. I learned so much from him as an artist and as a kind human being. In fact, in 2005, when Jackson was acquitted of the only molestation charge he ever faced in court, Robson was a star defense witness. He was an adult, he was intelligent, he was articulate, and he was adamant that nothing untoward had ever happened when he was with Michael Jackson. But now Robson is making a belated claim against Jackson's estate because his lawyer said Jackson was a sexual predator. And Robson last year collapsed under the stress and sexual trauma of what happened to him for seven years as a child. In my opinion, this is all about greed and money. But child abuse experts say that Wade's belated accusation is not uncommon and that sexually abused children often take decades to acknowledge abuse. Tragically, this is a very, very common story. Study after study after study on childhood sexual abuse has shown that it takes adulthood for many victims to come forward and that it is very possible that even kids in their 20s do not understand that a crime was committed against them. Jackson's estate says Robson's claims are outrageous and have no credibility. Good morning. Good, morning. Good to see you. you. You know that the things you're going to say here this morning and perhaps in a court of law are going to get a lot of attention, make a lot of headlines. So before I ask you specifics, what's your mindset right now? What's my mindset? Um, I feel strong. I feel like this is the right thing to do because this is my truth. Despite what some people may say after you say these things? Yes. Let me take you back to 2005, Wade, all right? The child molestation trial of Michael Jackson. You were the first witness called by the defense, and the attorney for Michael Jackson said he called you first because you were so convincing and powerful, asserting the innocence of Michael Jackson. Yeah. And here we are these years later, and you're going to say just the opposite. Right. What happened? First of all, one thing I want to clear up is that this is not a case of repressed memory. It's been reported in the yeah. press. So. I never forgot one moment of what Michael did to me, but I was psychologically and emotionally completely unable and, and unwilling to understand that it was sexual abuse. So what are you alleging that he actually did? He sexually abused me from seven years old until 14. I know it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult and personal question, but can you be more specific? Because you're accusing someone who is deceased of criminal activity. Yeah. So I need you to be a little more specific. Did he perform sexual acts on you? Did he force you to perform sexual acts on him? What was the nature of the abuse? Yes, exactly what you said. He performed sexual acts on me and forced me to perform sexual acts on him. How old were you when it started? Seven. Okay, Susan, there in that interview, as you can hear, he does not mention any of these latest claims, which comes out a year later. Um, I'm sure you read the, uh, the information that he's uh, alleging now. Um, where he's saying he was raped, where he's saying uh, there was French kissing, where he's saying all kinds of vulgar and uh, terrible stuff. Um, what is your diagnosis of this? Oh. 
Well, let's cut, let's go back and look at the comparison, okay? Because the only way you're going to really determine what's the truth is by, you know, determining a baseline behavior. The best information is always the first information, just to let you know. We're always looking at the first information. So there's some contradictions. One is he, he mentions that he feels strong. Um, right. Uh, when, when you look at his body language, he retracts. So he holds himself very small. Um, that is showing low confidence. That's contradicting that he feels strong. But, you know, the interesting thing is he's mentioned something, and I had to go back over and I had to listen to it a couple times before I caught it. But he says, you know, he says, this is my truth. Right. And that word my, that word my kept playing in my mind a lot because what he was saying is that it was only his, but doesn't he should have answered that, that this is the truth. Not my truth. So, right. you know, that uh, that really messed with me because, you know, part of what I do is also statement analysis, analyzing the different verb tenses, the pronouns, the, sing- the single pronouns, the um, the way words are phrased. And, you know, and, and also, too, when you listen to a statement, how could you have said what he said in a shortened way? And there was a lot of embellishment in the things that he was accusing in the second one, uh, right. the, uh, the newest that came out. But anyway, he, he, one of the other things I want to share with you, he had said in the first video, he says, I feel strong, and then he takes a deep breath. That's not someone that feels strong. That's one that feels like there's a lot, there's a very heavy weight. He's pushing air out. Um, when you feel strong, you breathe in air, not push out air. So that contradicts mm. at the same time um, you will notice that he, when he's asked the question, um, you know, what happened, he, you see a micro, what we call shoulder shrug. It's, it's just a very tiny little movement of one side of the shoulder. And that right. is a high, that is a very uh, high reliable uh, indicator of deceptiveness. So, you know, I'm, I wasn't buying it. Um, you know, and certainly the psychologists are correct that there are those that repress those emotions for years and years until they come out. That's in, they're correct that it is something that um, they may not be willing to deal with for years and years. But the thing that I have a problem with is that it, the the accusations are so outlandish compared to the first one that he's had way too much time to yes. think about it. And that's yes. a huge indicator for me. You know, the story should be similar, but when you're adding and embellishing and and very uh, graphic detail, um, I would like to right. have seen him in his expressions when he was talking about that, because I think it would be quite telling. So, uh, Yes, uh, from that time to that time, it's been over a year. Now, somebody who is accusing somebody after money, obviously, um, how big is that time factor in in one with one like Wade Robson in the situation he's in? You talking about the time difference between the first the timeline he testified and then now? Uh, I'm saying from the Matt Lauer interview. Till yes. the current leak documents, yes. um, how how big is it that he has all that time 
to possibly conjure up this story and make it more uh, vulgar and things like that. How important is that time factor? Because he needs to add heavy weight to his story. You know, he's got to make it heavier. He's got to make it more uh, graphic. You know, when you think about, I'm just going to kind of take this back when we were talking about the Jody Arias case. You know, Jody had added all kinds of different things with the photographs of the little boys and um, that, you know, she was very concerned. So to, to strengthen their claim, they, liars tend to add more weight to what they're saying. And part of what I do as a jury consultant, I have to meet with my clients before um, they go to trial. And, um, you know, I hate to, hate to say this, but I'm not going to mention names, but, you know, when I've listened to these testimonies and their stories, it's that when they've been in jail for a long time and there's a long span of time between uh, the incident when it, right when it happened and then, you know, years later or even a year later, the stories mm-hmm. get very detailed and very specific. Now, that concerns me because you would remember that from the very beginning because it's right on your mind. It's crisp. It's, you, you know, it's, it's a trauma. And, uh, you know, the fact that he's had to wait all this time before all this all came out, it's not unusual, but the graphic detail, the, the um, embellishment, the, um, the a- adding more weight to his story and more graphic detail um, – sends a huge red flag to me. Uh, absolutely. And um, he says, uh, I want to go back to, this is my truth. Now, uh, uh, that is it is some kind of admission to you, um, mm-hmm. in your opinion. Um, my truth is, what is he saying in essence when he's saying, this is my truth? To him, this is what he believes. That's what he believes. That's my truth. So it's not the truth. It's his own truth the way he believes it and he wants to believe it. It's his own. So but if somebody's asked you a question, if these incidences happen, they're going to say, you know, it's just, it just was an awkward sentence to come out saying this is my truth. You know, most people say, this is the truth. So that my truth is is singling him out. And, you know, Michael Jackson can't defend himself. So right. It's How not, big is it's that? Not our, it's not our truth. The interesting thing is everything else they've done together was them together. He touched me. I touched him. He did this. I did that. And it was kind of like volleying the ball back and forth. And then all of a sudden, now it's my truth. Why didn't he use the word, this is our truth? Wow. I want to read you some sworn testimony that Wade Robson um, had to deal with in court at the uh, Jackson trial back in '05. Tom Mesro asks, how many times do you think that you stayed at Michael Jackson's room at Neverland? Robson uh, says, same amount of times as I've been there, 
Well, no, that's not true. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I've been there a bunch of times with Michael, just with other friends, family traveling, but I don't know, about 15 to 20. Tom Mesereau, and at no time has any sexual contact ever occurred between you and Mr. Jackson, right? Robson, never. Mesereau, um, have you ever taken a shower with Mr. Jackson? Answer, no. Have you ever gone swimming with Jackson? Answer, no. Mesereau, can you explain explain what you mean? One time I was with my sister, and my sister and me and Michael, we went to the jacuzzi at Neverland. And do you know, uh, this is Tom Mesereau speaking, and do you know approximately when this was? Okay, I'm just getting this loading up here. Um, has anything, okay, Mesereau, has, did anything inappropriate ever happen in that jacuzzi? Absolutely not, uh, Mesereau. Has anything inappropriate ever happened in any shower with you or Michael Jackson? No, never been in a shower with Michael. Uh, Mesereau, did you get to know any of the employees at Neverland when you were there? Uh, Wade, I wouldn't say get to know. You know, I knew of them and we knew each other's names, but it never went beyond that. Um, Mesereau, do you recall someone named Blanca Francia? which is the maid uh, that said some things uh, that uh, there was some interaction. But uh, Robson says, yes, I remember her, and I remember her presence. I can't place her. I can't remember what she looks like or anything like that. Tom Mesereau, do you know when Francia ever was in a room where you were with uh, Michael? No, I cannot, says Wade. Okay, Um Mesereau, did you ever meet uh, a bodyguard named Ralph Chacon? No. Uh, how about Kasim Abdul? No. Do you ever recall someone named Adrian McManus? No. Mesereau, what do you think of these allegations that the prosecution is, is saying? Uh, they're absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, what did you get out of that? Well, I think the answers are consistent. No, 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 no. You know, and then a very affirmative, never. So, you know, if, <laughs> if I were to heard that, it just, it's so contradictory. And, you know, when we're looking at reading people, we're looking for contradictions. There's a contradiction here. So we have to find out why there's such a contradiction. Why is it? You know, was it that he was, you know, so young that he was so embarrassed that he didn't want to share this and didn't want to admit it, uh, but he was very firm about it? No, 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 and no. It's just over and over and over again. Here's some of the cross-examination from District Attorney Ron Zonin uh, on uh, redirect. Uh, you're telling us that nothing happened. Is that right? Robson, yes. All right. Were you telling us nothing happened while you were awake? Isn't that true? Answer, Robson, I'm telling you that nothing ever happened, point blank. Uh, DA, 
Mr. Robson, when you were asleep, you wouldn't have known what had happened, particularly at age seven or eight, would you have had a question mark? Uh, Robson answered, I would think like that something would wake me up. Uh, Was there, in fact, a shower at Neverland in the suite at the uh, bedroom suite? Yes. Uh, Did you use it? Absolutely not. Robson, uh, Zonin, excuse me, was he in the room while you were using it? In the bedroom, not in the shower, which has its own door. You haven't gone back to Neverland since you were 13, uh, asked Deputy DA. Uh, I have, just not with Michael. Have you gone back to Neverland since you were 13 and actually stayed overnight? Yes, I have. On how many occasions since you were 13? Answer, a lot. Same thing, 20, 25, like that. Mr. Jackson periodically would kiss you, would he not? Absolutely not. Uh, Would he hug you? Yes. Touch you? Hug me, that would be all. Uh, Would he ever put your hand, would he ever put his hand through your hair? Absolutely not. Uh, uh, Zonin, touch you? And about the head and the face? No. Did he ever kiss you on the cheek? No. Did he ever kiss you on the lips? No. So what do you think of the strong cross-examination that he had to go under? Under oath, uh, under the Bible where he puts his uh, hand up and says nothing ever happened back in 2005. I mean, it's just consistent with it didn't happen. It just consistently over and over and over again. Those are very firm denials. Um, you know, that the, I mean, he's basically telling you over and over again. And, you know, during an investigation, if someone were interviewing him, a good savvy investigator, um, what they're trying to do is not get what, these strong denials because that's the closed right. door. No. They don't want, they don't want that. They want, they want to keep that door open. So every time that they slam it shut, with a denial, um, generally they would use theming and storytelling, you know, asking them in different scenarios uh, to see if um, if they would, if, if finally that they would confess. But even with the uh, defense attorney going, trying different tactics, he's still consistently saying no. So, um, and it's very consistent. So, why he has changed his mind, um, I don't think we will ever know. Um, but it is you know, it's so drastically different. I mean, you can't help but think that, you know, it, it, on, on one side of it, just to be an outside observer, is, you know, what's in it for him? You know, what's in it for him is it could be possibly money. You know, money would be the only thing I can think of. Because who wants to go on national TV and tell someone or admit that all these horrible things are happening, how people are going to look at him differently could affect his career. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? And, uh, and so, it's, it's, they're asking for, I hear, in the neighborhood of 15 to $20 million. So he goes on TV and says, yeah, <laughs> he goes on TV and says all this stuff. He's going to get the estate scared and probably try to uh, squeeze money to them outside of court. Yeah. Uh, so the bad press, uh, 
would go away. And, but uh, so far, there have been no payouts. So, in uh, once again, we did have you analyze, Wade. Um, you, you're coming. You're sticking with your uh, same conclusion that uh, yeah. he sounded scripted. He did sound well. I don't know if I would use the word scripted. He just the emotions weren't fitting with his words. I look at things differently. You know, I look at. I, I'm watching the body language. I'm listening to the voice intonation. I'm, I'm looking for pitches and changes in his voice. And what would you um, look for if it was a true and honest victim? What things different would you yes. have seen at the mat on the Matt Lauer Today Show? Oh, if give me an example. Well, that's the one where he can. That, yes, exactly. When he was talking about, it, you would have seen um, distress, sadness. Um, embarrassment or shame, um, you know, and others might say, well, you know, he's had a lot of years to, to deal with that. But when he says he feels strong in his body language, is saying something different than to me, they're empty words. People say anything. This is what I want to share with you. Words are only mm-hmm. 7% of our communication. 93% of how we communicate through our, the way we use our voice and the changes in our pitch and also in our body language and facial expressions. And so this, the words that people say are not as heavily weighted to me or anyone that does body language analysis other than what they're not saying. I mean what their body language is saying, not so much in their words. So you would have seen, uh, you should have seen flickers or or moments of, Repress, you know, being repressed, like going back into time and reliving those experiences. Uh, when Sadness, you're talking, maybe. About, you just can't numb yourself from that experience. When you're talking about graphic details of stuff or very personal stuff on national TV, you're going to see some emotion come out that is consistent with someone that would be harmed. And you don't see that. I mean, he's, uh, for the most part, his facial expressions are pretty flat. You know, there's there's really not much affect there. And uh, a lot of people wanted me to ask you, how relevant is it that the Circus del Rey tour that involved the Michael Jackson uh, camp, um, he was set to uh, be a part of it in 2012, Shortly thereafter, he was released for whatever reasons. And then about two, maybe two to three weeks later is when the claims came. Hmm. What can you tell us about that? You know, I, I really could, wish I could elaborate on that, but I'm not familiar with the Circus Soleil. Uh, I have not heard that. So I'm sure that that uh, happened, but I'm not familiar with it. So it be, wouldn't be right for me to respond to that. I don't know enough about it. I think you're talking about a timeline, correct? Yes. Well, yes. yeah, these, these uh, you know, Circus Delay is obviously right. Yes. And, uh, yeah, he was he uh, he was supposed to be a part of it, allegedly. And uh, he, every, just until the last minute, uh, I believe Kenny Ortega said, you're off the, you're off the tour. And, ah, uh, gotcha. 
Well, it might so, be a way for him to retaliate back. You know, I mean, we don't know if this kind of this person tends to hold uh, are revengeful. We don't know. Um, you know, he doesn't appear to. When I'm watching him, he doesn't appear when he's talking that he is, uh, has an anger issue. I don't see that in his expressions. I would see some furring of the eyebrows or tensing of the eyelids, um, some you know, pressed lips or, or stretched horizontally, some sort of indicator that he's a kind of an angry person or a vindictive person. I don't see that. Um, right. There's, there's parts of Let me share something with you, though. There's always truth Please. in everything. Okay, it's never a. It's I. I. You know, a lot of people will think it's either black or white, and I'm telling you, sometimes it's gray. And you know, mm. it, it, when <laughs> not everything is is as it seems. So we don't know what happened behind closed doors the way he's interpreting it as his truth. We don't know that. Exactly. We don't know. That's very true. You know, so. Um, there's always in every every um, horrible person I've come across in, in in the business. I mean, wretched murderers. There's always <laughs> some truth in it. There's always some flicker of truth in everything that they're saying, even though most of it's going to be lies. So something, um, you know, you misinterpreted. I don't know. I have. I don't even want to even respond to that. But I'm just sharing with you that. Uh, I'm not seeing anger in his face. I don't. I don't sense that he's a vindictive person. Um, right. Is he? Is he looking for money? He's falling on hard times. I have no idea. But what I can tell you that when I'm watching him, is that is inconsistent from what he's saying, and, and then his body language is not consistent with it. Those are red flags to me. And then the extreme change afterwards, a couple years later. Now, all of a sudden, all of this is coming out, um, graphic details, contradict. I think he's going to have a really hard time. But here's the deal. And a lot of times it's to shut him up. They give him money anyway, and they settle out of court. Right, right. And I think going on TV was uh, maybe one of the, the big things that, that the lawyer might advise uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. Robson to do. Go on TV, let them uh, get rid of the bad press. Uh, but I do want to read you what he what he said the day after June 26, 2009. Here's a, here's a little statement that Wade wrote on his idol, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's closest Australian confidant, Wade Robson, has broken his silence about the iconic death. Michael Jackson changed the world uh, more personally. My life forever, Robson said. He is the reason I dance, the reason I make music, and the one main reason I believe uh, in the pure goodness of humankind. Jackson was touring Australia in 87. When he stopped in um, Australia, he met Robson, who was just five years old. Jackson was so impressed with Robson's dancing talent that he invited the youngster to perform Uh, at a concert. He then helped Robson and his mother Joy and sister Chantel move to the U.S. two years later. Jackson signed Robson to a a music label. Robson also appeared in three of Jackson's uh, videos, Black or White, J. 
him and heal the world. Uh, Wade says he has been a close friend of mine for 20 years. His music, his movement, his personal words of inspiration and his encouragement and unconditional love will live inside me forever. I will miss him. Uh, I will miss him so much, but I know now that he is at peace at, at heavens with melodies and a moonwalk. I love you. I love you, Michael. <laughs> well, interesting. <laughs> well, he just looks up to him. It's like the greatest mentor that he's ever had in his life, you know. And he and it is because of him that he has uh, springboarded his career. There's no doubt about it. But some of the things that he says is is um, mimicking how Michael talks. You know, he's saying that. Uh, you know the kindness yes. in the world, and those are those are words that Michael would use. But you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure he was a young, impressionable guy, uh, right. mesmerized with you know one of the greatest icons of music and and history. So you know he was very much taken by him. But uh, you know everything that I've looked at in this case throughout, and uh, and through Aphrodite's. Uh, Aphrodite Jones's work. I don't see anywhere that shows that, and, and I think the jury came to the appropriate verdict, and that was not guilty. I think he was not guilty then. He's not guilty now. But when I say not guilty, I mean that he didn't commit those acts. Because there's a lot of people. You mean innocent? Like, he's innocent. He didn't commit the act. So you know, some people will say that they're, he's innocent. Uh, but what does that really mean? The jury found me innocent. Well, the jury can find you innocent, but that doesn't necessarily mean you didn't commit the acts. But I now let me clear up for people that might be watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast. Uh, For the record, are you getting paid anything to do this interview or say anything nicely about Michael Jackson? No. (laughs) No. You want to pay me for the record? (laughs) For the record, have I asked you to bend the truth or anything uh, in this interview? No. Okay. Let's move on to your and Randy's vote. I want to play this uh, little clip, and uh, I want to get your take on what's going on with him. Okay. Joran Vandersloot's wife says her husband was seriously injured in a stabbing at the Peruvian prison where he is serving time for murder. But a top prison official is calling her account an outright lie, according to reports. Lady Figueroa, the Dutch convict's wife, told RTL, a news group in the Netherlands that is also a CNN affiliate, that Vandersloot was stabbed twice. Jose Perez Guadalupe, the director of Peru's National Penitentiary Institute, which oversees the country's prisons, told a 24-hour television station that Figueroa's assertions were untrue and further labeled her a compulsive liar. Susan Constantine, some mixed things going on with the girlfriend. Did he get hurt? What's the story? I think he did get hurt. If he did, uh, as you said, karma's a bitch. What's your take on what's going on with uh, Jorn Vandersloot? Let's say it did happen for argument's sake. Well, I think his wife had said something about that she's kind of smuggled out the uh, the bloody and his uh, wife, shirt. 
Pardon me? Yes, they're allowed to have. In, they're allowed yeah. to have sex in over there, uh, according <laughs> to what I read there, and she's expecting children in Peru over there. Very well, uh, different thing. What goes on here? I guess the question is, is that you know, am I feeling sorry for him? I'm going to go with the other one that says karma's a bitch. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it, you, you can't have any empathy for him. We've got two missing, well, one that, uh, of course, is found. Um, we still have Miss Holloway, which has been missing forever, and her, the poor mother has been tormented. Uh, oh, my. Her daughter. I mean, my heart just aches for her. Uh, that is a oh, mother yes. that will go to any end of the earth to find out including sneaking yourself into that prison to get an interview with him. Um, so, no, uh, he, he's, he's just very coy. Um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a sociopath. He has no emotion. So we can't expect him to have empathy and compassion when he's just not hardwired that way. He has none. That's, why, that's how he's able to commit the act. And, and, you, uh, so, and you followed him and people like him. Can I, let me ask you a question about people like you. Are they brought up to kill? I mean, or did it, does it come in the family? Is it something that happens to them as a child? What do you think causes that sensation that he would want to kill a beautiful girl, which uh, uh, I can't confirm, obviously, that he did to uh, Natalie. I know he did it to the second girl in uh, 2010. But uh, what... What do you think, uh, in your opinion, uh, would make somebody do that? Because I just can't, I just can't see. You know, he, he, was a, he was a young guy at the time, had everything going for him, and uh, you know, did it start at, at childhood? Is it something? Uh, yeah. Didn't go right. Well, he was. What's he your was take? Spo- he was spoiled rotten from the day he was born. You know, he was a privileged kid. Um, his dad was an attorney, and his dad stuck by his side and everything. And that, he got away with anything that he wanted. Whatever he wanted, Jordan wanted, Jordan got. And I think what happens, and, and just kind of clear things up, I am not a psychologist. I do have a master's degree in psychology, um, but right. not clini- I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I can't speak to, um, you know, personality disorders or diagnose, you know, what, what the issues is here, but you know, are they born this way? No, no one is born a sociopath or a psychopath. There, there, you know, there is some evidence of you know brain injury and things like that, but um, uh, I don't think that's the issue here. I think that what happens in most of these cases is that it it um, escalates um, when they get what they want or they don't get what they want. Over time, it it just um, they start to develop a, a, a borderline personality disorder, narcissism, and that's he's a narcissist, and whatever he wants, he's going to get it no matter what. I mean, he feels empowered. It's all about him. Um, it's a godlike syndrome. They feel like they're owed everything, um, and they and narcissists have a very difficult time having any compassion. I mean. They can't because everything is focused on them. It's not in, in anybody else's. They have a very um, disregard for other people's feelings and emotions. It's just not something that's in their hardwire. And But it doesn't happen when they're born. It's something that's 
you know, they're, they, they become, you know, with circumstances in their lives and uh, they become that if the disorder is not um, being um, controlled early on. And that's why we end up with a, a Dahmer and some of these other quacks out there. O.J. Simpson, of course, very similar. Yeah. Found not yeah. guilty in 94, 95. And then yeah, exactly. uh, does some crazy stuff with a gun in 2007. Also a narcissistic uh, personality, right? You know, the problem is here that do you know that there is no cure for narcissism? You can't take a pill. <laughs> it, it cannot be controlled. Uh, narcissism is a very scary uh, um disorder to have i mean it, it's it is a personality disorder and there's no cure for it because in order to get treatment you have to know and want help but that's the problem that narcissists have they don't think they need it because <laughs> they're above oh my everything. god what about sedation sedation sedate them about i should what? say well, what about them? sedating them Sedating well, what is that uh, going to do? Sedating, I mean, like with uh, medication, you know, with yes. a Zach or something. If you know, no, there's there's no pill for it. There's no cure. Like, like there's no cure for sexual offenders. There's no cure right. for those. You know, so when you've got when you're narcissist, I mean, people are in narcissistic relationships. They have a narcissist in their uh, people that are close to them, people that have high positions can be narcissists. Um, look at uh, uh, Peterson, the cop. I mean, extreme oh, narcissists. Yes, yes. Chicago, and right. Yours a lot like that personality. Yes, yes. What about, and I see it too much, so it's these women teachers who, you know, take these teenage boys and have sex with them, and, and I'm seeing it so much, and I see these women who kill their kids. Can you mm. comment on those two things, in your, just in your opinion? Well, I tell you what, there is an epidemic of this, isn't it? It's just a, just a blatant disregard for human um, for humans, and I think that there's an issue with there. When you, when we watch stuff on TV, and I know it sounds like people oh, it's nothing to do with TV, but we become immune to stuff, you know, when we see it over and over and again. In fact, like in murder trials, uh, oftentimes uh, the defense may want to have those photographs shown over and over and over and over and over again. Why? I'm talking about the defense. It's because they become immune to it after a while. So it's not a big deal. And you know, I think it, it just, the chemistry, I think it changes the chemistry of our, our, our brain, how we think. And, um, you know, there is, of course, women with postpartum depression. We saw that with, with um, uh, the, the uh, gal that murdered her five children. Um, Andrea oh, uh, Andrea. She was, she was no, found she was uh, guilty. She was but, found guilty. Uh, uh, murder, but then she was retried. In fact, the company that I worked for, JuryQuest, um, helped the attorney, the defense attorney, in the retrial selection of the jury. And then she oh, really? was found... Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And that's when I came on board with them. And then he was found... She was found guilty by reason of insanity. And I think that that was an appropriate um, 
verdict. And, and in Texas, you know, it's like an express lane to the electric chairs. <laughs> they don't. They're pretty <laughs> tough. Over, they're pretty tough over there. So that was a. But anyway, back to the subject of these two women. Again, it's all about themselves. They don't want these kids to be have any. You know. Um, they don't want these kids to rule the world. If they want to get up and go hang out and go to the bars, they want to, you know. Um, I.E. Casey Anthony. They just want them out of their life. They just I.E. Casey Anthony. Life. Casey Anthony, same thing. Well, right. I think that that's true with Casey Anthony, but I also think that with her is there was some competition between her and her mom. Um, her mom... Right you know, did not uh, approve of Casey's actions. So I'm sure that she was pretty brutal with uh, Casey about her lifestyle. And then also on top of it, the threat of if you don't get yourself together, I'm going to get custody of that kid. And so she okay, did um, her own. I think yeah. we have a caller for you. Uh, let's go out to 787. Please state your name and where you're calling from. You're on the phone with Susan Constantine. 787, it's your turn. Hi. Um, I was just listening in. Um, I guess I don't really have a question per se. Um, and I sort of missed the first um, 40 minutes of what you guys were saying, so I apologize. But um, I just wanted to say um, I, I followed some of the things you've done, Susan, and I think you do great work, and just wanted to thank you for what you do. And then, of course, for last year, because I... Um, Listen to the broadcast um, from when you were talking about um, the Wade Robson interview on TV and helping to point out how this person is not being truthful. And that's basically it. Um, oh. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's, it, it's nice to have people out there that acknowledge the work that you do. Uh, this is not a paid job. So we do this because we're <laughs> passionate about what we do. And, uh, you know, certainly it's not to put my face on the TV every time. I get tired of looking at myself on TV sometimes. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, what is right is what's right. And, uh, you know, I've taken a lot of years uh, in uh, training to look for things. And, and uh, you know, and I tell it like it is. You know, if I think the person is innocent, I'm going to say it. But uh, if they're guilty, they're guilty. But I have, I really take the science very seriously. Uh, all of the training that I have had over the years and applying just that, and I keep myself out of it emotionally. I do not have an emotional attachment to these cases. Well, that, that's, I, I'm, it's interesting you bring that up because I know that there's another uh, one of your peers. I don't know if another caller brought this up before I came on. Um, but one of your peers, um, really in glass, do you know her? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I know of her. I don't know her personally. Oh, well, um, she went on, I forget which show it was, Entertainment Tonight or one of those programs, and she tried to get the own body language analysis of that same interview that you went over with Ray Robson when you went on to the day show. And she was basically saying that because of this and this and that, or he was being truthful, when you and Craig Baxter had the complete opposite opinion. Mm-hmm. And I find her rationale because she has a website and I addressed it to her because she pulled up another interview from 2008, which was before Michael died, and long before he made these accusations, basically using that to sort of say that even back then, 
he was um, spreading around the issue that there was something wrong. But I brought up the fact to her that how could you say that, you know, he was showing discomfort back then when, according to him, he didn't even realize that the so-called abuse he says he endured happened or was wrong until 2013. You know, that kind of, that kind of, like, invalidates your view. I mean, I just brought up a bunch of other things, but she, 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 she just kind of blew me off, you know, saying, and I guess yeah. she didn't outright say it, but she was kind of like saying that, oh, because I have these credentials, you know, I, I have to, you know, I have a, like my viewpoint, like, mean something, I guess, like, you know. Well, know. In, uh, in, you know, they always say that before you come up with any diagnosis, you always need to have two or three recommendations, you know, or two or three different opinions. Um, I don't think that what... Lillian is saying, uh, I don't know, remember exactly, you know, what she said because I did see it, but I will say that m- most often we agree, all of us, on most things. Um, but I can sh- uh, share with you, I know that she is a psychologist, but I train psychologists in deception, deception detection. And uh, my question would be is, even though you have a psychology degree as a Ph.D., what investigative training have you taken and what have you used in the true field of this work of crime? So I think there's that little component that's missing. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I get called often is because I, I literally work in this field of work. I'm not analyzing people for a living uh, on a couch. Uh, there's a huge difference. <laughs> Big time difference. So, uh, you know, all I can say is that most times we do agree, but there are times where they may see something that I don't. But if you were trained the way I was trained, there's no denying what the symptoms were. It's like we just take a note of all the different symptoms, we tie it into the content, and bingo, that's what it is. I see. All right. Well, I don't know. Um... But still, like, it's interesting, like, two out of three, two, you and Craig Baxter both came to the same conclusion, but then she comes up to the opposite. But then, you know, I wonder the fact that she was on TV, that she said something that I just wondered if maybe she purposefully skewed it to make it, you know, delicious because of the fact that she was on TV. And then, I have no idea. Uh, I can't. I can't speak for her. Uh, but I can tell you, you know, I've done a lot of television, and most uh, television stations are very ethical. And I, I know that people think that, you know, they put words in your mouth and they try to skew it or spin it a certain way. But I have done over a thousand national appearances, and I have never experienced that before. I think it was really more about how she felt. But then again, you know, it's also the fact that it's Michael Jackson, and then of course the media. For years and years and years, the majority of most media have always been seen to misrepresent any stories about him. It can seem like a freak or a pedophile or anything like that. You know, just just slanting most stories about him in a negative way. But that's instead of what you said, you know, there's some ethics in place. Mm-hmm. So I I can only kind of hear your voice. It seems a little muffled a little bit, and I think it's just because it's the connection. 
Are you saying that she agreed he was innocent or that he was guilty? Oh, um, you mean Lillian Glass? Yes. What? No, oh, no, she's saying that Wade Rockley's body language and, what, and the way he spoke shows that he's telling the truth, meaning that Michael's guilty. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Well, she oh, doesn't yeah. know what she's looking for. Sorry, Lillian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's right, though. So you do need a couple of opinions of, uh, in any line of work. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that sometimes people that when they get emotionally attached to something uh, that they may skew it, their direction. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. But I cannot imagine because there's no way. If she would have known that, you know, tying content in with shoulders shrugging and the voice pitched lowers and, and her, uh, the statement analysis when he says it's his truth and showing contempt and af- low at, no affect. You know, I mean, there's there's just way too much here that that any true investigative behavioral investigator would know that there is lots of um, cracks in his in his story. Right. Well, but yeah, I agree. But I just but thank you again. Um, and I thought I want to pick up any more time because I'm sure there's other colleagues. But thank you again, um, Susan, and, and thank you, Jordan, for bringing me on. And I hope to hear from you guys sometime in the future. And have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, we, there's always going to be different opinions uh, in, a, in in all lines of work, right, sir? Always. You know, and, and with doctors, with dentists, I don't care what it is, psychologists, you know, everybody has their own opinion because from their years of experience, they take their years of experience and, and, and they apply it and they have certain beliefs um, that they formed over the years. I try not to look at that in, in that way. I'm looking at the this, this actual signals. What am I seeing? What is it making sense? What's congruent? What is not congruent? And as I shared earlier, is that, you know, there's never black and white. There's always some gray. Absolutely. And uh, finally, let's get into uh, Jody Arias. Oh, boy, wow. This trial uh, is probably not going to end until uh, (laughs) next year. Right. we uh we were talking a bit a little bit earlier. Um, just to go over in a nutshell, she got uh she she's been charged formally uh, with uh, first degree, and um, but I remember uh, when you and uh, who's that prosecutor that was on the show when we did the uh, year end uh, uh, Stacey Honowitz Mark, and you. Mark. Stacy Honowitz? Stacy yeah. Honowitz? Yes, I believe Metro said that although he did not deserve to be killed, Travis was not Mr. Perfect. Did you no. say that? And if so, can you uh, rehash yeah. some of that? I certainly can. First of all, there's nothing that anybody could ever do 
other than trying to protect yourself from being killed, to kill another human being. It's just unacceptable behavior. Right. So regardless of what uh, Travis did or said, really nothing was as would have consummated or what would have would have uh, was the word I want to say is it's it, there's nothing that justified did. yeah that's the word I'm saying justified excuse me because I've been speaking in training all day and I, I drove all the way back <laughs> home to do this interview so I'm a little I'm a little groggy uh but anyway uh, there's no way to justify her actions but on the other hand uh he was not innocent uh, I think that he you know, um, and, and I have to agree, you know, with, uh, I talked a lot about this even with my mother. She's great. I love to throw things by her because, of course, she's she knows the business I am in. And she says, you know, uh, I what, he was like a sexual deviant. Uh, and, and, and they both were sexual deviants. And, uh, right. you know, there are things that he said which you, you can't deny it. It's in the transcript. You could hear his voice. Everything was recorded. There's some pretty nasty stuff in there, and uh, Aphrodite Jones know, said uh, they should have. He should have cut off the sex. Uh, maybe me? that would have helped. Aphrodite Jones, when I had her talking about it, he said, she said he should have cut off the sex. You know, stop getting her around for a quickie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't mean to be uh, blunt about it, but you know that's basically how she felt. Uh, about Travis, uh, you're dealing with a lot of emotions with uh, a girl, and some people feel that she just broke, you know? Yeah. Uh, being tortured by him. Oh, I think that's part you know? of it, too. I think that she loved him. She desperately loved him. And, um, and, and the only way that she could get connected close to him is through sex, because that's the only thing that he would respond to. So that that's- was... Um, you know, it was a it was an unhealthy cocktail. But you know, it's, in, it's in, I was thinking about this as I was driving uh, back from the speaking engagement that I did today, and it's just about right. emotions and how quickly, you know, that just in anything in this world is has to deals with emotions, where emotions are not in check. You know, in everything, you know, people blow up. They kill people. They're bombing people. It, you know, and it all has to do with beliefs. So they're they're emotional beliefs. There's and they're just out yes, of whack. Yes. And emotion yes. is a very is a powerful powerful um, emotion. And you know, yes. you, you, you start messing with people's emotions, they get wacky, right. and they do crazy things. That's right, you know. Uh, but in no way do I condone what she does. She did. Uh, no, I don't either. Nobody deserves that. Nobody deserves what he got. You know, he he was in the midst of knowing what's going on as he was being killed in the most suffering, suffering way possible. Uh, right. But she was. She was the. Uh, you know. Uh, with the handstands, with the lies, uh, just, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. it just, I don't know, Casey Anthony and her was just like, wow, I don't know who's worse, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, crazy, crazy stuff, 
stuff out there. It, now, you know, uh, you're not you're not in the courtroom, but uh, as an educated guest, this is the second time Mr. Juan Martinez gets a crack at trying <laughs> to put her to death. Um, you know, a lot of people, Joey Jackson, quote, if anybody deserves a death penalty case, it would be Jody Arias. Tom Mesero disagreed, uh, doesn't believe in death penalty. Um, so we have people who have uh, Aphrodite Jones doesn't uh, like the death penalty. Lisa Bloom uh, does not like it. Um, in your opinion, uh, let me ask about it, just the death penalty itself. What is your feelings on it? And it depends on the situation. I am for the death penalty, but it would mm-hmm. need to be something totally heinous. Uh, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, uh, those type of people, yes. I think sometimes, yeah, uh, yeah I think that the having to spend the rest of your life in prison is worse than death because they never get You're a chance to right. outside of those walls. And not only that, I think that you should take into consideration, too, which most people aren't aware how much money it costs to keep somebody on death row. It costs the cost us just thousands and thousands more by keeping somebody on death row than to keeping them in prison for the rest of their life. But I'm not against a death penalty. I mean, if I were called as a juror on a death penalty case and I felt that it was like a Jorn Vandersloot, I'd, I would have given him the death penalty um, with not a flicker of the eye. Jody Arias, right, right. Um, I go back and forth on it. I think that um, it was so brutal that uh, out of some of these women killers, I mean, she's at the top of the top 1% list. It's way over the top. Um, but I but I don't know whether it's going to happen or not because when you look at the statistics, I mean, it's like 2%. There's only two women. I think it was two women, state of Arizona, yes. that are, you know, it's crazy. What, so, I in mean, your opinion, the, the why is that? Why female. is there such and low? Uh, right, right. Women she was a fat old lady in her 60s. Uh, with gray hair, uh, she would have probably got the death penalty already, maybe. Well, you know, I, throughout history, how often do we see women that create that have created those heinous type of crimes? You know, it, the majority of them have been, have been men. So, I mean, just by those numbers alone, it's probably why. But uh, I think the, the, uh, it's in Jodius' favor of not getting the death penalty. When we look at the split on that jury... Uh, you know, you know, a death qualified juror has has to be able to come back with a death a death sentence if they had to, they could. Um, but when they say they can do that, and actually doing it are two different things. Two different right, things. Right. You know, right. if you're and talking, you know, they can say it. I don't put a lot of weight in words. So right. I'm not one that will, hmm? So they, <laughs> I just don't. I don't put a lot of weight in words, what people say, uh, and especially in those types of cases when it's a high-profile case because you've got jurors that are wanting to get on the case. I remember sitting in the, the, the Casey Anthony trial and, and seeing right. a, 
a bunch of jurors that are anxious to get on. Same thing with the George Zimmerman. I had one of the state, excuse me, the, the uh, public defender says to me, have you ever seen a bigger bunch of lying jurors in your life? You know, people trying to get on that jury because it was high profile. <laughs> they would say anything to get on there. So, but but oh, what, yeah, I've done, yeah. I have been an, a jury consultant for several death penalty cases, and we would ask. Now, for my we, audience, can you tell exactly yes. what a jury consultant does? For my audience, can well, you tell it? Sure. Uh, well, a jury consultant does different things. Now, I'm not a jury consultant that that gives recommendations for exhibits um, or strategizes their case. Myself as a jury consultant, I help a jury, I help an attorney pick out a jury who I think are their dangerous jurors to identify those that might be biased to our client, ones that would be considered being dangerous, ones that would convict rather than to acquit. So I'm looking for, I'm helping attorneys uh, determine out of that jury pool, you know, what type of juror we're really looking for, but more often, which ones don't we want? And with my mm. skill set and reading people, I help them to identify who are those dangerous jurors, not only just in their body language, but also, too, based on some of their demographic factors, uh, their profile. Mm. And so I have and, um, uh, them. Now do you have to look into their social media, like uh, their yes. Twitters, and see what, they, what they're up to on Twitter and Facebook and things like that? There is, like, Amy Singer will do things like that um, in the in court in itself. First of all, we don't have the names of the jurors until the day of the trial. So you don't have a lot of time. It's not oh, like, okay. you know, runaway jury where you've got your jurors and you got you can do their background checks and, and check them out. Um, but in, in court, uh, in some of the cases that I worked on, in one case I worked on with uh, Mark Knee James, was the uh, one of the uh, other uh-huh. attorneys was uh, going through Facebook and uh, I don't know about Twitter or Facebook, just getting backgrounds on some of the jurors that were, you know, people we were looking at keeping or dismissing, just to find something on. If we found someone that was that we really were afraid of, that were dangerous, we were trying to find some some crap on, and we can. <laughs> Facebook, you know, that would contradict what they were testing, you know, what they were talking about when they were asking questions. So it's a very tedious job. It's like playing chess. It's um, it is right. It, yeah. it, it's like a chess match, and it's uh, it's a strategy of of trying. To, you know, most attorneys won't admit this, but basically, what they're trying to do is to stack them in their favor. So they can get the majority effect. They can get more jurors that are pro-defense or pro-prosecution, depending on what side you are, that will sway over the other jurors and and, um, have a more favorable outcome to their client. That's what what we do. And uh, uh, for the audience that's listening now, if uh, you will, uh, you can, uh, for free, obviously, teach, right? Do I teach? uh, Yes. Okay, and uh, the website is? SusanConstantine.com. You want I to have a new website out? up. It's uh, Susan, S-U-S-A-N, Constantine, C-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-E. And there's lots of videos um, if you want to see some of the trials I've done. 
uh, and that, that, that I may say that I've done, I've reported on, you know, there's several of them that are on there that you can go back and review. But the training programs are all listed there. You don't have to be an attorney to come to one of the training courses. I've got four of them coming up, one in Vegas. Uh, there's two in Georgia. There's one that's going to be here in Orlando. And I think I've got another one coming up, too, and I can't remember where that was. But it's all on my website. And they and there's also courses that you can purchase for yourself that are on demand. So you can actually learn yeah, in your own home how to detect deception. Yes, there's a book. I don't sell the book through my website. You guys can all buy it a lot cheaper in the bookstore than what I can sell it for, even though I was the author. Um, so you can even buy it on, buy it on um, Amazon.com. It's called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Reading Body Language. Wow. Uh, that's awesome. And uh, I hope everybody takes advantage of that. And, uh, Susan, uh, as we said, the uh, HLN has not been the same. Uh, oh. Let's look at what Mike Brooks wrote about uh, Dr. Drew. Everybody's gone. Where is everybody? He, he said it's like Wait, a uh, women... <laughs> it's a, a, a women... Uh, take over. Words to that effect. That's not the exact quote that I'm having in front of me, but uh, boy, oh boy, my Mike Brooks said something when he was uh, looking at um, uh, Dr. Drew and all the uh, ladies. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I had to share with you. I mean, I think uh, Dr. Drew as is a uh, great contributor. I would love to see him back in the role. I think that he is... Um, just brilliant at, and that is really uh, working with uh, people that have uh, drug addictions. I think that uh, that's really his strong point. I um, I kind of feel like it's kind of a misfit for him for the trial stuff. It's just not something that is in his background. And Nancy Grace, she the mold. She's perfect for it. And uh, but. Yeah, a lot of us are gone. I don't know what happened to the, the – I mean, literally overnight, it's like, poof, everybody's gone. And we've lost some really great people with Vinny and uh, Ryan Smith and Jane Velez and Mike Brooks and, you know, Joey, I think he's struggling to stay on. And uh, they don't think they, – they don't, they don't call them many body language experts anymore. They just – if if you've got long blonde hair, dark hair, and it's flipped back away, they all look <laughs> like little <laughs> – they all look the same, you know. <laughs> I don't get it, and I, re- I mm-hmm. unfortunately, I got to tell you, I don't watch it anymore. Don't watch it anymore. It's hard to, it's hard to, it really it's is. A, uh, you know, like you go back a couple of years, uh, everything Ryan Smith, Vinny, uh, the whole cast that was was great. You know, the fans, it was um, the best. Yes, yes, we still like Michael Lano's. I do at least. Yeah, I so I love him. Yes, I was. I was on his show. I was on his show like a few weeks ago. Uh, yes, yes, and you look fantastic. Oh, you, you saw me there. <laughs> well, yes, you, I caught you there. <laughs> yeah, I remember now. So you thank- did say something about that. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for giving us some time here, and uh, more importantly, thank you for giving us the truth. And uh, you're welcome. That's the best way, and. Uh, uh, my audience always loves when you come on. So uh, thank you, and uh, we'll hope to have you on again. Okay. Bye. Good night. Good night, Sue. 
and good night, everybody. We will speak to you on Tuesday at 8 p.m. with Pro Wrestling. Uh, let me leave you with uh, Jody Arias. Uh, at times you'll hear silence, um, but let's play you piecing together the truth behind Jody Arias' lies, the details of Travis Alexander's death. Take care, everybody. We will speak to you on Tuesday at 8 p.m. with WWE Wrestling Talk. So call back then. Tuesday, 8 p.m. We will go over I all the... I want to show you a uh, here that illustrates exactly where Jody Arias stabbed her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander, including a wound. The medical examiner says pierced Alexander's heart. In all, more than... Gosh, two dozen knife wounds, including a slash on the victim's neck from ear to ear. And on top of that, he was shot in the forehead. Medical examiner Dr. Kevin Horn says he found evidence on Alexander's hands that show he may have been fighting for his life. Let's get back. There were several photos of him, and the last one that we have is him sitting in the shower. And that's when I think it happened. He was sitting down, looking up at you. What did you do? And this knife has penetrated that cartilage and gone through the sac that surrounds the heart. He was kneeling down in the shower. I don't remember him. He, like, if this is his shower and the sink is over here, I was, like, right here taking pictures. or an edged weapon, you can have uh, cuts or, or, or um, uh, incised injuries to the backs or the palms or the backs of the forearm, and it's consistent with someone trying to either grab the knife or for, uh, um, uh, fend off wounds. Or does that off. tell you, or at least in terms of time, does that indicate whether or not there was at least enough time for Mr. Alexander to attempt to defend himself and then get these other wounds to the hand? With this wound to the heart, he, he should have been able to get his hands up and <clears throat> attempt to defend himself. If he was in a seated position when this wound was inflicted, would he have the ability, even though this was inflicted, to get up and walk somewhere or move quickly somewhere, as a matter of fact? Yes. And the way you described it, uh, by necessity, the person would have to be conscious and alive, correct? Yes. Travis was screaming. He was screaming. He was screaming. Travis was screaming the whole time. He wasn't screaming like a girl. He was just like, like he was in pain, like he was like shocked, like oh, you know. Would blood come out of the mouth, the ears, or, or just out of the chest area? If the lung is nicked, they can cough up blood. Um, if you uh, have blood going into the throat area, and he does have you know, throat injuries as well, which we'll talk about, um, all of those can cause coughing up of blood or loss of blood out of the mouth and the nose. I remember putting my hand on his back. He was on 
arms and knees like this, doing something like this or something like, I don't know. This is another stab wound of the back part of the skull behind the ear, so there's bone underneath there. He was holding his head. I think he was in shock. I sort of used his legs, but he wasn't standing up. Yeah, he's like, I can't feel my legs. Freely freaked out of my mind. This person is alive at this point, according to you, right? He was yes. still alive at the time. Yes, was but uh, my examination did show uh, that the jugular vein and the carotid artery on the right side were both cut. And I, looking at this, how, how deep is this wound that we have here? Uh, it goes all the way back to the spine. Uh, it passes through um, the airway, so the windpipe is cut through. Let me stop uh, you there. When it passes through the airway, does this individual, as it's going through there, lose, lose the ability to scream at that point or not? It's uh, below the larynx, below the voice box, so yes. Oh, he was talking or saying much, but I could tell he was breathing. He seemed like he was breathing calmly, I think. He wasn't like, he was just there. I don't think this person could have had a purposeful activity, meaning I don't think they could have raised their arms and attempted to defend themselves. He wasn't really moving, though. He was just standing, staying kind of still on the floor. He has two major vessels in his throat that have been cut. Uh, he's going to lose a great deal of blood very quickly. He's going to lose consciousness within seconds, likely, and then die a few minutes later. Travis was bleeding everywhere. He was bleeding everywhere. Well, after you lose blood, you lose the ability to provide oxygen to your major organs, including your brain and your heart. Um, in this case, uh, the first thing that would happen would be dizziness followed by loss of consciousness and then death. He was starting to just get weaker and weaker. He was still, like, able to move his, like, he was, he was all, I guess he was all conscious up here, sort of, still. But he wasn't, like, on his leg or on his knees or on his feet. He wasn't walking. It cut this one a little, but not as much. This is where it really went. I don't know how it happened that all these other fingers were missed, but this one, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how deep it was, but my finger hurt for a long time. Oh, I can't fit a ring on here. Okay. It's a bigger size now. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious how that happened. It happens when a knife slips through someone's hand because of blood. It's slippery. was still alive, still alive. He wasn't moving a lot, but he was still alive. I could see that he was alive, and he was still alive. Conscious, even. He was still, like, conscious and still alive. Do you have an opinion as to the wound to the neck, whether or not he was alive at the time that that was uh, rendered, if you will? I believe he was. There's a great deal of hemorrhage associated with that. And was he alive with regard to the one to the chest that we've been talking about? Yes, I believe he was.